Well, hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. Uh, thank you for coming out and worshiping with us uh, this Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you are new here, just want to welcome you and give you a hearty hello. Welcome to our worship service. Uh, it's really good to have you here. My name is Eric Noh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be giving today's sermon. Um, I would love to meet you after service if you are new. I'll be right out there in the foyer area. Please come find me. Uh, I'd love to hear your story and how God has brought you here to this church and to this place and to just connect with with you and, and uh, maybe provide some avenues for you to go a little bit deeper in the life of this church. Also, additionally, I would encourage you to, uh, to go to that meet and greet with J&K. Uh, our staff is going to be having our own sort of meet and greet uh, uh, this coming Tuesday. Uh, and so I, I look forward to that, to hear all the stories uh, of what God is doing uh, in their lives uh, in the mission field. Uh, well, we have been going through a vision series in the book of Nehemiah, and today we're coming to Nehemiah chapter 6. And the reason why we decided to study Nehemiah in light of our vision is because in the book of Nehemiah, he is rallying the people of God in order to build God's kingdom. And here at New Life Fellowship, our vision, our mission is to be a Christ-centered community, to be the people of God, in other words, uh, that expands the kingdom of God by making disciples. So we too are building God's kingdom. And so there are parallels between Nehemiah Nehemiah and New Life Fellowship and what we were hoping to do was to really study and to see how God moves us along in this mission and for the last several weeks we've been talking a lot about opposition to the mission of God which is what happens a lot here in the book of Nehemiah and today we're going to continue that talk about opposition uh, because here in Nehemiah chapter 6 uh, Nehemiah receives a lot of opposition and uh, I, I think it's sort of providential that we landed here on this day because tomorrow is Halloween and Halloween is known for this one thing, right? Fear, being scared, uh, right? Uh, watching scary movies, right? We think a lot about fear and we think a lot about um, uh, just this idea of being scared. And today's passage is all about that. This is the opposition that Nehemiah is facing here, is fear. And so if you're taking notes, you can write these three things down. Uh, we'll read the passage right after this, but the, the three points will be this, the problem, which is fear. Uh, the second uh, point is going to be talking about a solution, which is the truth. And then the third uh, uh, point will be solution number two, which is love, okay? And so we'll talk about those three things. But at this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's word together? We're going to be looking at Nehemiah 6. I'll read the whole thing for us, um, really because it's, it's a great narrative, and I think we're going to be talking about the whole thing. So, um, But uh, let me go ahead and read this for us. I'll, I'll, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you can say thanks be to God, I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafrim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Uh, why should the work stop while I leave it and, and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent this sermon to me uh, with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your mind. 
for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of um, Mehetapel, who was confined to his house. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man uh, such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me. Because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him for this purpose he was hired. That I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted me, wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all of the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And, the, uh, and his son, Jehonan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah his wife also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him and Tobias sent letters to me uh, sent letters to make me afraid this is the word of the Lord let me go ahead and pray first and then I'll seat you uh, Lord Jesus we thank you for this word God we pray that you would make us a courageous people a bold people Lord who would work for truth and for love in your mission Lord we pray and ask that your spirit would be here guarding our hearts and our minds as we listen as we respond to your words Lord we thank you in Jesus name we pray amen you can go ahead and be seated I have uh, two truths for you this morning the first truth is this fear is one of the most powerful and efficient motivators fear is one of the most powerful and efficient motivators you can ask my children, okay, I can tell you if my kids are not going to sleep, I can either say to them, I can either reason with them, talk with them, have a discussion, or I can say to them, go to bed right now or else daddy's going to be really, really angry. And if I say that, guess what, they go right to bed. Because fear is a powerful and efficient motivator. Here's a second truth. Fear is also the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of faith. In other words, if faith is the light side of the force, fear is the dark side of the force. If you want to grow in discipleship, if you want to grow closer to Jesus, we'll ask Jesus for more and more faith. Let him increase your faith. But on the converse, if you want to get further and further away from Jesus and go closer and closer to the world, to Satan, to all of these dark forces, then just raise up the amount of fear that's in your life. Fear will disciple you in the opposite direction. So let me talk a little bit about faith and fear. Look at what it says in Hebrews about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So in other words, faith is this. It's believing that Jesus Christ will come back again. It is believing that Jesus Christ is righting all the wrongs. So even though you are in the midst of suffering and heartache and pain, you understand that God is good. God is fair. God is just. God is love. God is gracious. And when he comes back and he rights all the wrongs of history, he will redeem the wrong that is in your life as well. And you have faith. Even though you don't see it, you have a hope. You have an assurance of that hope. 
But conversely, what is fear? Fear is the exact opposite of faith, as I said. And so let's take that same verse in Hebrews and let's just change a few of those words, okay? And it'll be up here on the screens for you. Now, this is kind of a joke, okay? So don't take it seriously, okay? It's not, it's not from the book of Satan, chapter 1. There's no such book, okay? Don't go looking for the book of Satan, okay? It doesn't exist, okay? But now fear is the assurance of things you dread, the conviction of things not seen. Now fear is the assurance of things you dread. And the conviction of things not seen. In other words, fear is believing that if you don't get that job, you will be a failure and everyone will look down on you. And they'll question, like, what did you do with your life again? It's, it's a conviction of things unseen. It's an assurance of the things you absolutely dread in life. Fear is believing that if your children don't perform in Taekwondo well, well, they don't know how to follow instructions. And because they don't know how to follow instructions, they're not going to do well in school. And because they don't do well in school, well, guess what? They're not going to have any friends. And because they don't have any friends, they won't get a job either. And because they won't get a job, they'll be poor and they'll be isolated and they'll have no friends. And this is my fear, my friends. My son is doing Taekwondo. He don't follow his master. And every day I get so worried because he doesn't follow his master. And I think he'll be poor and broke and isolated when he grows up. These are convictions of things unseen. It is an assurance of the things that I dread. Faith will drive the mission of God forward. It will advance the kingdom of God. Faith will give you life filled with joy, adventure, excitement, and it will cause you to love others, to be outside yourself. To, to say like, I'm going to be selfless and give and give and give love, grace, mercy, compassion, all of these things. But fear will cause the opposite. The mission of God will die. It will cause you to become anxious, anxious, stressed, protective angry selfish and it will cause you to turn inwards if you think the whole world is a threat and you live in fear i'm telling you you will go inwards you will protect all of your goods all of your time all of your energy and all of your resources let's dive into the story of nehemiah now we haven't talked too much about his opposition pastor clara did touch upon it several weeks ago but let's go a little bit deeper with these guys there's three main antagonists there's a sam ballot tobiah and geshem okay and these three guys are the main antagonists of the story and they all have one thing in common they're all powerful men uh, for example sam ballot we have some additional extra canonical sources that tell us that sam ballot actually ends up becoming the governor of samaria and he uh, in nehemiah he's kind of on his rise getting to that place of power but but he ends up becoming the governor of samaria in that same document that tells us that Samballat was the governor of Samaria, there's a, that document also tells us that Tobiah ends up becoming a really, really wealthy family in the Ammonite community. He was Jewish because of his name. His name is Tobiah. That's a Jewish name. But he uh, makes a name for himself in the Ammonite community, and his family ends up becoming a really high-powered family for centuries and centuries to come. Geshem as well. Geshem is same, but uh, he's one of the few non-Jewish folks. Sambalat, Tobiah are Jewish. Geshem is an, uh, a foreigner. Uh, but Geshem, uh, it tells us that there's a silver vessel donated to an Arabian goddess with his name on it in the 5th century. So it's about 40 years after these events. And it, it emerges that Geshem and his son ruled a league of Arabian tribes which took control of Moab and Edom under the, uh, under the Persian Empire. So they too gain a lot of power. And so in other words, again, succinctly put, they're all powerful men. And these powerful men are threatened by Nehemiah, who's, who's gaining power. Who, uh, by these Israelites who are building a wall, right? Israelite, Israel's are coming back. Jerusalem is coming back. They're gaining power. And their power threatens their power. 
And this is why these men go after Nehemiah. They don't want him to build a wall. They don't want him to be successful because his power attacks their power. And so the opposition to this story can be summed up really nicely with one word, which is fear. Their tactic is fear. Throughout the story, it's all about fear. We'll go into this a little bit later, a little deeper into these three episodes. But there's essentially three episodes or three strategies that they use. But every strategy that they employ oftentimes ends with trying to frighten Nehemiah to, to stop building the wall. And in fact, let's go there to the verses, right? So they try this strategy. And then in verse 9, it says this, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. You see that? Frighten us. Verse 14 again, right? They employ another strategy to make Nehemiah afraid. And then it says this in verse 14. Remember, Tobiah and Sambelet, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And then verse 19 finally, right, another strategy is employed and it says this. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. This verb for make me afraid is a very, very rare form of that, ver of that word. And it's very rare, I think, because the author wants us to notice this word. He wants it to jump out of the page to us. So we see, oh my gosh, they're trying to frighten Nehemiah to stop the work on the wall. Fear is incredibly powerful. Listen to what Jesus says about faith, and then we'll take, a we'll take a look at the opposite, okay? This is what Jesus says about faith in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you if you have just a little bit of faith. Now, let's, let's do what we did at the beginning. Let's kind of flip a few words around, okay? Let's, and, and again, okay, this is a joke, okay? There's no such thing as the book of Satan, chapter 2, verse 1, okay? I just made this up, but let's look, okay? Because of your little fear, for truly I say to you, if you have fear like a grain of mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Do you know that if you employ fear as a tactic, nothing is impossible for you? Um, do you remember at the very beginning of this pandemic, what happened? There was this object that, I don't know why, people got so afraid that it wouldn't exist for them. And it was toilet paper. Remember that? Everyone went crazy, right? No toilet paper. I'm going to have an itchy butt for the rest of my life. Oh, no, right? And, and we all got afraid. So what we do, every single American got up and went to Costco, right, to buy toilet paper, right? We all got up and did this. Meanwhile, at home, I thought, well, hey, what, what's the worst that could happen if we don't have toilet paper? My wife was like, no, we got to go get toilet paper. I was like, it's okay. We can wash our butts with water. It's been done for centuries before toilet paper was invented. But every American across the U.S. was afraid. 331.9 million people got out of their couches and went to Costco to go buy toilet paper because of a little bit of fear. Take that, okay? I'm just going to do a little bit of math here. 331.9 million times 180 pounds, okay? That's, that's 59.742 billion pounds of flesh moved because of fear. Isn't that crazy? Just a little bit of fear. Just a little bit. Itchy butt fear, okay? That's it. 359 billion pounds. I Googled this. I said, I, I Googled how, how heavy is a mountain, <laughs> right? By the way, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know how heavy a mountain is. But uh, they, they, 
there was a website that said uh, the coldwire.com. I don't know if it's true or not. I have no idea what this website. It could be a sham website. But according to coldwire.com, they said that an average mountain it weighs a, a rough uh, some billions of pounds. Okay, they said Mount Everest weighs a, a few trillion pounds because it's a you know tallest mountain. But average mountain weighs a few billion pounds. Jesus, right? You can move a mountain with just a little bit of you know just a little bit of fear. You can move mountains. You can move billions of pounds of flesh. Truly nothing is impossible with just a little bit of fear. You can scare your children into obedience. You can make people so afraid that you can get people to work for a corporation that they care nothing about, that they want nothing to do with, but they simply work because they're afraid to be laid off. You can scare people into not being decent human beings. As I mentioned, you can scare people into toilet paper and, and get them to be absolute jerks to each other, waiting in line and cursing each other out because they took the last toilet paper while you needed it. You can scare your wife into compliance. You can scare your husband into submission. You can scare your employees to work harder. You can scare people to shut up about the truth. You can even scare church people to volunteer because they feel so shame and guilt-ridden. You know, uh, there was a movie that came out in 1999 that I absolutely loved. I'm sure many of you have not heard of the movie, but it's called Blast from the Past. How many of you have actually heard of this movie? Some, no? One? Okay. Oh, yeah, there you go. Our worship director, uh, David Lee. Yeah, good. Nice. Um, well, Blast from the Past, it stars Alicia Silverstone, uh, uh, Brendan Fraser, and uh, one of my favorite actors, uh, Christopher Walken. And Christopher Walken plays a character named Calvin Weber, Dr. Calvin Weber. And he basically uh, 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 is, is a scientist, brilliant scientist, but he has this fear. He has a fear uh, that a nuclear war is going to break out at any time. And this movie uh, begins in 1962 during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis where Russia and America were, you know, going back and forth between developing nuclear warheads and see who had more nuclear warheads and who can be the more powerful country, right? And so he ends up taking his pregnant wife down into this bunker that he had created. And he ends up uh, going down there, but simultaneously, sort of serendipitously, this plane crashes, uh, makes an explosion at the top of their house while they're underneath. So they feel the vibrations of this explosion. And Christopher Walken character thinks that the nuclear holocaust has begun. And so he seals the doors for 35 years, right, because that's how long it takes for the nuclear um, waste to kind of clear a little bit so that it's, it's decent. So he seals it up for 35 years. His wife is pregnant. She gives birth under this bunker. And it's all about Brendan Fraser's character who kind of grows up in this bunker for 35 years isolated from the world and what's interesting about this movie is that when he re-emerges when when they re-emerge after 35 years they call it blast from the past because 1962 culture lives in that basement and so when brendan fraser comes out of course now it's the year 1999 or whatever it is but but you know he's been living in 1962 culture for so long and so it's all about him kind of getting acquainted to modern culture etc etc but Throughout the movie, what they portray is that this family has not been living their lives. They've been, I mean, think about it. We were stuck for two years in our homes, and we went crazy. Think about being stuck in a bunker for 35 years. I mean, that would drive somebody crazy and mad because you're not living life. You don't have any excitement. You don't have any adventures. You don't have anything. You're tucked away, hiding yourself from the world. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. He says this to us. He says, you don't hide in a bunker. He says this to the church. He says, you are the light of the world. 
You are a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are supposed to shine. The miss, this is the mission of God. This is what the church is called to. We are called to shine like a city on a hill. We are called to be public with our faith. We are called to be out there. And yet what stops us from shining brightly, what will cause us to tuck away ourselves in safety in a bunker is fear. If we think the world is threatening, if we don't want to go up, if we want safety, then I'm telling you we will never move the mission of God forward. Right before this passage, Jesus talks about persecution. Did you know this? In fact, it's the beatitude where he says, blessed are you who are persecuted. And then he goes on to talk about a city on a hill. You know what he's saying? He's saying, don't be afraid, guys. Don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of persecution. Don't be afraid of anything. I've got you. I'm going to take care of you. Fear can stop Christians from talking about Jesus. Fear can stop Christians from praying for other, for healing in other people's lives because we are afraid that maybe God might not show up. And that's okay, by the way. I pray for a lot of people now for healing, and a lot of them don't get healed. And, and I think that's okay. That's okay to pray for healing, though. It's okay to pray and ask God to heal them physically and spiritually and mentally, internally, all those things. And maybe God will, maybe God won't. And if God doesn't, what I do is I say, God, give me more faith now. Fear can stop Christians from being generous because we think we don't have enough for ourselves. So we don't tithe, we don't give generously because we think, oh, I just don't have enough. I've got to protect myself. Fear can stop Christians from living biblical obedience. Fear can stop Christians from believing the truth. Fear can halt the very mission of God in your life. And so let's move on to the second point, the solution to fear. The first thing is truth. We need truth. Let's go back to the story of Nehemiah. The strategy that these three folks employ every single time to get Nehemiah to be afraid is a lie. They lie. And this is why the truth is so important. They lie to Nehemiah. Uh, look at what they first do, right? First, their first strategy is this. They say, hey, uh, Nehemiah, come and let us meet together at Hakafrim in the plain of Ano. That's a very open field. Let's have a diplomatic meeting. Um, but look at what Nehemiah says. He sees right through it. He says, but they intended to do me harm. That word harm in Hebrew is the word ra, which is evil. They intended to do evil to me. In, in other words, it's probably violence. They wanted to kill me, in other words. Then, because that doesn't work, right, they try four times, he, uh, they fail every single time. Nehemiah's like, I got this great work on my hands, I can't come down, I'm too busy, right? Then they draft this letter and it's a complete fabrication. Uh, in other words, right, the, 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 the right calls it fake news, the left may call it misinformation, but nonetheless, it's fake. It's a fake letter, it's fake news. And listen to what it says in verse 6, this is the news. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, intend to rebel against the Persian government. And that is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So come, now come, let us take counsel together. You see what they're, they're trying to get him to be afraid of the king of Persia, who actually sent him there to rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah replies, he says, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love that phrase, inventing them out of your own mind. If you ever call out a friend next time for lying, just say, you're inventing that out of your own mind, brother. Then when that doesn't work, they hire a prophet to essentially tell 
Nehemiah a sham prophecy and the prophet tells him this look people are going to come to kill you in fact they're coming tonight go hide let's go hide in the temple bro and he's like I can't hide in the temple if I hide in the temple I'll die you know this and he's like no 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 just go go to the temple and then Nehemiah says I found out that they've been basically bribed by Sambalat and Tobiah to tell me this sham prophecy so I'm not going to go and then the last lie is sort of true it has a hint of truth Right, they build this wall, it's great, they accomplish this work, praise God, it's a victory. And then at the very end, Tobias says, but you know what? These Jewish nobles, they sent me some letters and they're a little bit displeased with you, Nehemiah. Like I don't know if you've ever been in the office or you ever had like a task or a goal like on a team and you guys complete that goal and you guys made the company millions of dollars and you did a great work. Your manager pats you on the back and is like, good job, bro. You did a great job, sister, whatever, right? And then, and then afterwards your coworker comes up to you and says like, hey, man, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so over there, that coworker thought you did a, did a poor job on that area of, of the work. And, and even though you guys had done a great thing, all of a sudden you feel so small. All of a sudden you feel like, oh man, I'm not, a good, I'm not a good worker. I suck. I'm all these things, right? That's essentially what Tobiah was trying to do. He's like, yeah, you accomplished this work, but you know what? Some of the folks, they're not happy. They sent me letters. See, here they are. And those letters were real. And he was trying to discourage Nehemiah. Did you know that Satan will lie to you to stop the mission of God? There, there, is, there is an enemy out there. And I know for us modern folks, we're always like a little scared to talk about Satan, but he's real. And he's going to lie to you. And here are some things that he's going to make you feel. He may not say this audibly to you, but you've probably felt this before. He will say things to you like this. You are too evil to serve. You're not holy enough. Look at that guy. That guy prays so much. You don't pray at all. How are you going to serve God? You, like, like they, they've been a Christian for so long. You've only been a Christian for one year. How are you going to serve God? And he will kill the mission of God in your life because you believe, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not holy enough to serve. Satan may say this to you. You're not smart enough to talk about Jesus. You don't know enough. You don't know enough about Jesus to talk to this person. If you talk to a non-Christian about Jesus, they're going to smash you, bro. They, they, they know so much more than you. They know so much more about science and about history and all this stuff. They're going to smash you, man. And so therefore, don't even open up your mouth about Jesus. Don't even talk about him because you don't want to get into one of those discussions. People are going to hate you if you talk about Jesus. Did you know that? People are going to hate you. If you're too generous, you won't have enough. You can't have that little vacation that you've been planning for. You, you won't have enough. So just, just save it up for yourself. Protect yourself. You got to look out for you, right? You got to put, put the airplane mask on yourself first before you save others, right? You got to do you first. If you obey the Bible's rules on sex, alcohol, and money, you won't be happy. You'll feel confined. You'll be imprisoned. So you know what? I'll just don't. Who cares about those rules? But here's the truth, friends. God loves you and washes you and cleanses you and he says, come and serve me. Yes, of course, there are certain offices in the church like elder and deacon that require some kind of piety. Okay, but that doesn't mean that you can't serve God in your own way and shape and form. When you're saved, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, he calls you into his kingdom work. He calls everybody into this work. And he says, look, I'm going to wash you and I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you my grace and my mercy. I'm just asking you to come and serve and to be a part of this kingdom work. Like you're not too evil to serve. Like I'm going to keep washing you. I'm going to keep cleansing you. I'm going to keep growing you. Right? This is exactly what Moses thought at the burning bush. He was like, oh, like I can't speak. I'm too evil. Like I killed this guy. But God's like, hey, you got me. I'm Yahweh. I am. Look, maybe they are smarter than you. Maybe they do know more about science and history. But we have to trust Jesus and his Holy Spirit that if we share whatever faith we have, whatever story or testimony that we have of God's faithfulness in our lives, he will use it. 
just like the two, the, the boy who brought five bread and two fish, right? He only had a little bit. He couldn't feed 5,000, but Jesus fed the 5,000. He multiplied the bread. And he could use your faith and your testimony. Whatever you know about Jesus, he can use that for his glory. So just share what you know. Here's the truth. Maybe they will hate you, but that's okay. Even if they do. And maybe they won't. But even if they do hate you, that's okay because you have the love of your Savior, Jesus Christ. God is good. God loves you. God is powerful to save. And that is the truth. And we have to trust that. We have to have faith in that. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a sermon called The Mastery of Fear. And in it, he, he has a little blurb that he says, fear is mastered through faith. That's literally what he said. Fear is mastered through faith. And then he proceeds to tell this story of this woman that he encountered. And I want you to hear it now. This was written back in 1957. So it's going to take on the language in 1957, okay? But just listen. It's a little bit of a longer story. But I hope it encourages you like it encouraged me. During the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama, one of the most dedicated participants was an elderly Negro woman that we affectionately called Mother Pollard. Although poverty-stricken and uneducated, she was amazingly intelligent and possessed a deep understanding of the meaning of the movement. Once, she was asked several weeks of walking whether she was tired. My feet is tired, she answered, but my soul is rested. Whew, that a great line. My feet is tired, she answered, but my soul is rested. This was just one example of her ungrammatical profundity. One Monday evening after having gone through a tension-packed week, which included being arrested and receiving numerous threatening calls, I went to the mass meeting depressed and fear-stricken. Did you know that Martin Luther King Jr. was fear-stricken? One of the most courageous men that we can think of in the modern era was fear-stricken. And he says this, in my address, I tried desperately to give an overt impression of strength and courage, but deep down within the soul of my inner life was a nagging serpent of fear which left me poisoned with the fangs of depression. At the end of the meeting, Mother Pollard came to the front of the church and said, come here, son. I immediately walked over and gave her a big hug. Then she said, something is wrong with you. You didn't talk strong tonight. Seeking to keep my fears to myself, I retorted, oh no, Mother Pollard, nothing is wrong. I am feeling as fine as ever. Now you can't fool me, she said. I know something is wrong. Is it that we ain't doing things to please you? Or is it that the white folks is bothering you? Before I could answer, she looked directly into my eyes and said, I done told you, we is with you all the way. And then with a countenance beaming with quiet certainty, she concluded, but even if we ain't with you, God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. Everything in me quivered with the pulsing tremor of raw energy when she uttered these consoling words. Mother Pollard has now passed on to glory. Since that dreary night in 1956, I have known very few quiet days. I have been tortured without and tormented within by the raging fires of tribulation. Day in and day out, I have been forced to stand up amid howling winds of pain and jostling storms of adversity. Times without number, I have learned that life has not only sunlit moments of joy, but also fog-packed moments of sorrow. But as the years have unfolded, the majestic words of Mother Pollard have come back again and again get to give light and peace to the hitherlands of my troubled soul. God's going to take care of you. This is the faith that can transform the whirlwind of despair into the soothing breeze of hope. There is an old familiar model which says, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered, there was no one there. It's so simple. The truth is so simple and yet it's so profound. God's going to take care of you. 
he's going to take care of everything. Look, Jesus will put it like this. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, what he's saying is this. The worst case scenario for everyone in this room is that you die because of whatever adventure you go on because of God's calling. That's the worst case scenario. But he's like, but that's it. That's all they can do is kill the body. But I saved the soul. I got control of your soul. I'm going to take care of you. So if I can take care of you in the worst things, I'm going to take care of you in all the other things. God's going to take care of you. It's a simple and yet profound truth that we have to meditate on day and night. God's going to take care of you. Let's move on to the third and final point, the solution to fear number two, which is love. Martin Luther King Jr. goes on to talk about a second solution. He says this, that fear is mastered through love. Nehemiah was given a vision by God and if you think about what this vision is, it's a vision of love. It's a vision to build, to rally the people of God together, to make them the people of God once again and to usher in God's kingdom. This is a vision of love that Nehemiah is pursuing. Even for us as New Life Fellowship, our vision, although it's being a Christ-centered community that uh, expands the kingdom of God by making disciples, the gasoline that powers this vision and mission is really love. Everything in this vision and mission is propelled by love. Look at what 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. You know, this word for love in the New Testament is a strong, strong love. It's the kind of love that would send Jesus Christ to a cross. Jesus Christ should have been utterly afraid and yet he went to the cross courageous and bold. Why? Because of love. It was the Father's love. It was his love for us. It was to glorify the Father. It was love that sent him to the cross. Think about the Apostle Paul that went all over the world on a missionary journey to plant churches and to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus. It was love that drove him to be persecuted, to be chased out of villages, to be uh, beaten uh, with rods and to be chased out of cities. It was love that allowed him to conquer fear. Look, our vision and mission for New Life Fellowship is to be a Christ-centered community that expands the kingdom of God by making disciples. And look, what's going to, look, love will cause us to reach out to other people in this community who are brothers and sisters in Christ to create this Christ-centered community. Look, I know you're afraid. You're afraid of each other. Oh, I don't know that person. What if I say hi to them and then they like totally don't hear me and they look away and then like I look like a fool. Well, it's okay. You got love. You love them and so go pursue them. Even if you don't know them, even if you think you could look like a fool. Hey, you know what, I, I, you know, I was thinking about joining this community group to love people, but you know, I'm kind of afraid. It's love. Love will help you to pursue that community. Look, maybe you're afraid of sharing your faith with another person because you're afraid that they might look down on you. Well, think about love. If you love them and you know that their life is without Jesus right now, then love them and tell them the truth. Tell them who Jesus is, what he's done for you. Tell them. Because you love them. Yes, you will be afraid. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say this, look, conquer, being courageous is not never having any fear, but it's looking fear dead in the eyes, but allowing love to drive you through that fear. Look, people with courage, people who have mastered their fear are actually the scariest kinds of people. Did you know that? In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, this is what it says, right? In verse um, uh, 16, it says this, right? They finished the wall. 
And when all our enemies heard of it, that's the finishing of the wall, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Do you know why people with courage are, 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 are the scariest kind of people? It's because people with courage cannot be controlled. They can't be coerced. They can't be manipulated. They can't be forced to do anything. You know, you, you know what we call courageous people? We call them free people. Because they're not controlled by anything. Even the strongest thing on planet earth, fear itself cannot manipulate or control these people. They are free to do whatever it is that God has called them to do. They're free to do as they please. This is why the, Roman, uh, the Romans persecuted the early church. Because they were afraid of the early Christians. Even though they were a people of love and grace and humility, they were afraid of these people. Which is why they killed them and burned their documents. This is why they crucified Jesus who was the most peaceful man on planet earth. He healed people and he brought the message of salvation and yet they murdered him on a cross because they were afraid of Jesus this is why America persecuted Martin Luther King Jr. was because they were afraid of him even though he was a peaceful man he never committed any violence they were afraid of him because he was free people who use violence are oftentimes people who are afraid look if you're a violent person in here and you're proud of that as a man you're like yeah dude I'll fight anybody I'll fight anybody, bro. I'll talk to you right now, right? You're probably actually the most afraid person in this room. You're not courageous. You're cowardly. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's true. This is why Americans threw objects and violently assaulted Dr. King. They were afraid of him. In other words, the most powerful people are not the ones who use violence. It's the people who use love. Jesus Christ didn't overturn the Roman government through power, force, or violence. I mean, there's no Roman, like, there's no, like, powerful Roman government anymore. You realize that, right? They were the world power. They're no longer there anymore. And do you know how he did it? It was with love. Jesus Christ ultimately did overturn the Roman Empire. He just didn't do it right then and there with violence and force, marching in there with armies and soldiers. He did it through his blood shed on the cross. Christ didn't destroy Satan with bows and arrows and spears. He did it with his blood spilled on the cross. He purchased us and redeemed us. Christ didn't expand his kingdom through coercion or manipulation or lies. He loved us. He shared the truth with us. And so that all, when they hear the gospel, would be saved because of his blood on the cross. He did it through love. Every kingdom on planet earth was built on blood and fear. Every kingdom of this world has been built on blood and fear. It's only God's kingdom that has been built on the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and through love. The love that poured forth from the cross. That's how his kingdom expands. Look, if love is the thing that drives his kingdom forward, how do we get this love? Well, 1 John tells us again, chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Everything we do, all of our mission is driven by love, friends. We, we love other brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Jesus Christ did on, for us on the cross. We derive our mission from Christ. We get our love from Christ. We get everything from Christ. We get it from love. Then let me ask you this question, right? If Jesus Christ is love and he says that I am love, God is love, why do you neglect love? Why do you not spend time with love itself? This is what your soul needs. Your soul needs love. The big hole, the gaping hole in your heart, that's love you, you want. And Christ says, look, come and spend time with me and I'll give it to you. 
The reason why, if your life is filled with hate, if your life is filled with anxiety and bigotry and fear, it's because you're not spending time with love himself. You're neglecting life and love and the nourishment that your soul needs. It's no wonder that you hate. It's no wonder that you fear. It's no wonder that you have all of these things pent up inside of your heart. Spend time with love himself and receive that nourishment. Friends, I'm telling you over and over again, I mean, it, it, I'm preaching the same sermon every week. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. And look, I, I can say this till I'm blue in the face, but I'll promise you this. I'll never fear you into doing this. I'll never do that. I never want to say, hey, if you don't do that, guys, I'm going to come after you. I can't force you. I can't pressure you. You're free people. All I can do is paint a picture of love and a vision of us running after Christ together, call you to it, say, hey, let's, let's love each other. Let's love this world. Let's expand God's kingdom. Hey, here's a vision of love. Let's come chase it. And all I can do with you is plead and beg with you. Spend time with love. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with him, friends. This is the way we're going to become more loving. This is the way we're going to expand this kingdom. It's not through fear or violence or coercion. It's through love, friends. I pray and I ask, look, on Saturday mornings we have a prayer service and it's been growing incrementally. Maybe one person at a time. And I'm going to keep urging you. Let's come Saturday morning. Let's pray together. 7 a.m. It's okay. I know it's a little sacrifice. But man, when we get to pray together as a community, it is so refreshing. It is so encouraging. I, I honestly can say this without a, sh like I, I feel, I, I, I just feel, I look forward to those prayer services when we get to pray together as a community. I have my own prayer time. I have my own quiet times. And that's great. I love it. But when we come together as a community to pray for the church, to pray for our city, to pray for our coworkers, like it just, it brings me so much joy. So friends, I just want to implore you and encourage you. Let's spend time with Jesus Christ, love himself, who rescued us, who gave his life up for us, to give us all the things that we need for life, liberty, and love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there are some people in this sanctuary right now who are filled with fear and anxiety, Lord. And Lord, their fears are real. God, maybe there's a sick one that they love, God, that may be approaching their final days. Maybe there's a job that's been lost, Lord, and there's some real financial difficulty that's set ahead of them, Lord. Maybe there's a relationship, Lord, that was lost or they're about to lose, Lord, and they're afraid. And so, Lord, we, we, we love the fact, Lord, that you are God of all comfort. And so, Lord, we ask and pray that you would go to them now and comfort them, Lord. We pray and ask that you would comfort them of their fears, their anxieties, and their worries, Lord. And we ask that you would just minister to them right now, Lord. And, Lord, at the same time, we pray that you would speak into their hearts truth. We pray and ask that you would speak into their hearts of love, Lord. That you would remind them of their identity in you. That you would remind them of the love that you have for them, Lord. And ultimately this simple and yet profound truth, Lord, that you are going to take care of them. And so, Lord, we respond to this truth with worship, Lord, and we ask that you help us with worship. We pray and ask that you help us to sing out now, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.